0: Welcome to Lineouts by Earful of Dirt, bringing you conversations with rugby newsmakers about the greatest sport on the planet. Welcome to Earful of Dirt Lineouts. Uh, I'm Aaron Castro. You can find me at the Stroboro on Twitter, and I'm live with Dave Clancy, uh, the newish head coach of UCLA rugby was new this, this last spring. So for all intents and purposes, the, the new, newest coach uh, that UCLA has had um, more than a decade after uh, succeeds uh, coach Stewart. And uh, you know, uh, it was interesting. Uh, He kind of laid low for a while. I didn't even know that they were hiring a new head coach and uh, everyone's like, a few people are like, Dave Clancy's uh, head coach at UCLA and uh, your stuff still said Chicago Lions. So it was kind of, you know, it's like, what's going on there?
1: Yeah, it was a bit of a transition for sure. I mean, um, first and foremost, I mean, like I was, uh, my alumni was joking me yesterday, he's like, you're the coach that doesn't coach because I came in mid season and then we got shut down for, for COVID-19. So. But, yeah, I mean, the, I got offered the role in the new year and then got out there at the start of this year and got about eight, nine weeks with the guys. And then uh, we just got back from a game in Utah and the school got shut down that Monday. So, um, yeah, kind of went under the radar of the pandemic, me starting out here. And I keep a little bit of a low profile too. So, but, yeah, I'm excited to get out there. Weird start. I mean, we were definitely seeing some momentum and I was really excited to start. Um, blessing of Fire went straight into a D1A fixture like my first weekend. So um up at cal so um yeah but i mean i'm delighted to be out here and it's hopefully a very long-term role for me and something i can really grow the program to new heights and i'm really excited that we've got an alumni group behind me who are like our match my ambition for where they want the program to go and have actually launched a fundraising campaign yesterday to try and um, elevate some funds for the program um so that we can professionalize and compete at the, the very top
0: you know, I like we were talking before we went live, you know, I had previously supported UCLA rugby a little bit. Maybe I should find some money and throw some throw some your way because okay. growing up, I was a UCLA fan. And, you know, I'm obviously a rugby diehard at this point in my life that, uh, you know, I was like, hey, just us uh, throw some cash over there. And uh, I'm sure they need it because I knew what club rugby was like when I was in college. And then I obviously knew what club rugby was like as a senior player um so and you know you try to the more money you guys raise the less you have to charge in dues to your players you
1: know yeah 100 percent. i mean it's it's been such a tough one for us to lose because i mean the the summer camp that we host every year is a big source of revenue for us we've had to cancel that you know dues were reduced or eliminated in the the spring quarter and they're most likely we're going to have something some sort of impact in the fall and um, yeah, so we we lose a lot of opportunity, but I mean that's where it's it's great. Like the alumni were engaged and and stepping up long before anything happened, you know, in terms of global pandemic. So, but I mean this has just rallied them further, and then I mean we're fortunate people have a bit of time on their hands, and um, you know they've got evenings to get on Zoom, and we're we're excited to get this launch and see where it goes.
0: You know, it's 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 interesting to see how the college rugby landscape has changed, but here's something else to look at. Um, we're going to, we're going to talk about you and your journey to being in the United States as a, you know, as, as, as a rugby coach, because you, you look in the college sphere. There are a lot of foreign coaches, especially on the club side, not near as much. I think on Naira, um, yeah. I, I, I think there may be one or two. Don't quote me on that. There may be zero for all I know. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, where did First of all, when did you start playing rugby? Obviously, you're Irish, so um, were you a multi-sport guy growing up? Yeah, I
1: played played multi-sports growing up. I mean, probably played soccer mostly and rugby from like the age of four growing up. I mean, as it is, and um, I kind of yo-yoed between the two because I was small and then I was tall and then other guys got bigger, so i was over back but i mean high school rugby where i'm from like i'm from limerick which is like where Munster rugby is based and like rugby is religion for us over there so you get to high school and the rugby coach makes the final decision for you he's like you're on the rugby team you know so um so yeah i got involved in there and um played up through that and then played with a club that's associated with my school called old crescent and uh but yeah i started getting injuries i mean i had a quick trajectory through my my later teen years, and um as I get into college age, we don't really play college rugby. Like you go club, and if you're good enough, you go into a professional academy. But um, started having a lot of injuries, and I was actually going to major in architecture. And um, the uh, yeah, and I was very fortunate because I was already involved with Munster, and like one of their coaching staff, who actually coaches at Belmont here, Ray Egan, um, has done for the last eight or nine years. Um, him and a few others that are involved in Munster at the time, they were like, hey, like if your body's not letting you pursue rugby as a player there's another avenue to you know getting into it from like it was professionalizing as a sport so I ended up doing a major in sport and exercise science and within my third week of um of my undergrad Munster were like you know come start doing stuff with us um so I went from like at 18, 19 years old, playing with and against guys who are now playing for Munster in Ireland to leading their warm up in pre season of August the next year. And they're like, hey, Dave, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm, I'm doing your warm up today. I'm helping out with the academy or whatever. So, and I kind of never looked back from there. I spent more time with the pro team than I did in college classes. Um, you know, and it was it was, it was a unique dynamic. But sometimes my lecturers were asking about best practice in coaching and they were like, hey, Dave, like, what are Munster doing in this department? You know, because they knew I was in and around it. So, um, yeah, so I spent a while there, some predominantly with the academy, got to meet some really cool coaches that they had through at the time. And uh, and then an opportunity came where I could take some time out of school and, and um, go abroad because I, I didn't need to fulfill any work placements because I was basically working with a pro side full-time. So uh, I went out and uh, through a connection that I was going to go to the Waikato to the Chiefs and uh, in New Zealand and spend some time with them. And uh, the guy that was head of strength and conditioning, because I was predominantly doing strength and conditioning stuff, he got a job at Samoa for a year leading into the World Cup. And he was like, you can still come and work with me. I'll just be in Samoa. So I went out there for a year and uh, it was awesome. I mean, it was a year where they prepared for the World Cup. Um, they beat Australia and Sydney famously. Um, our under-20s won the Junior World Trophy. And I really got a hands-on role with that because we had an academy coach who like quit midway through my year there. So myself and John Schuster, who's like an all-black and Samoa legend, me and him just kind of carried on with the program and, and won that world trophy. So, and that was where I really decided to take coaching seriously because I was very much focused on like the gym performance side of things. And I was working with a guy called Scott Wisemantle, who. Wise? Yeah. So.
0: Wisey, Wow, man. So just, was throwing, like, just throwing names left and right, Dave. Yeah, I mean, he—I mean—he's a good guy.
1: We're still in touch, and I'm hopeful that I can go and shadow with him and um, Dave Rennie later, like when this is all over. But he put me aside, and he was like, "Mate, you need to be coaching," like because I was having a lot of dialogue with him about game plan, playing style, skill development, so like that. And and that's when it hit me. So I went back to Munster for and worked with the Under 19s for a season, and uh, and then through a connection with the Welsh Rugby Union, Canadian guy Dan Baugh, he was like, he reached out to our head of performance. And uh, Aled, who was looking for a young guy that would go out to the Cayman Islands and spearhead a program for six months on a Commonwealth grant. I got tapped on the shoulder. and like, do you want to go out to an island? I don't know. They play sevens and they're trying to qualify for the Commonwealth Games. I was like, sure. It sounds great. I was fascinated by sevens because I'd been out to Samoa and spent a year around a team that was World Series champions a year before. And I come back to Ireland and it's non-existent. And I was talking to the IRFU and they're like, we don't have funding or we don't have enough players. Like, it wasn't a thing there at that time. So I really wanted to go out and dip more into it. So I got an opportunity to go out and coach sevens. And um, it was a great opportunity. I just, I mean, it's a nice place to live as well. So I stayed there quite a while. I was out there for three years. And um, I visited America a couple of times. I visited Mike Friday and Chris Brown. Um, Cause me and Chris have been in touch since he was in Namibia and uh, visited the OTC around 4th of July. can't remember what year it was, maybe 2013 or something like that. And uh, I was like, okay, this is cool. And, talking to Ray in Belmont, like I could see that American rugby was growing and PRO rugby was about to start. And I was like, okay, there's, there's significant movement in American rugby. And I, as a young coach, I could start my life, my journey and my, um, my coaching journey out there and then make that my home, you know, and, and, and grow as the sport grows. So an opportunity came out of nowhere through a connection with Tiger rugby. And they were like, Chicago lions are looking for a director of rugby. Um, and uh yeah, just headed up there and built that program out, which was really exciting because it was good. I mean, they're obviously a very prestigious competitive club who compete like for regional titles and national titles year in, year out at sevens, fifteens. But I had an interest in like I did my thesis on sports for development and where the Lions are based is in like a one of the worst zip codes in America. Like there's thousands of shootings a year within a couple of mile radius on the west side of Chicago and my development mindset and, and then the high performance. Like we started a program there that served inner city youth and now it serves five inner city schools, hundreds of kids and their 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 attendance in school and everything's gone up. So that was a really cool program. And uh but yeah and then the UCLA came role was advertised I think back in November, December. And I mean club rugby's a little bit in flux right now. I mean I've seen so many players come through the Lions and go on to MLR and what where club rugby sits at the moment, I think, is a little bit in flux. And but the college game, I think, is going to go from strength to strength. So, and then you know, I think a job like UCLA at a school as prestigious as it is for sport doesn't come up every often. So, um, yeah, I jumped at it, and I was very fortunate that they picked me of all the candidates. And yeah, uh, very grateful to get started out here.
0: So, I mean, you're at UCLA, but if we if we take a pause and go back to the, your your journey with the Lions, I mean, uh, you know. You guys had 20, 30 guys when you showed up. Now you have, like, a, um, I guess, a composite club structure, uh, the Lions yeah. partnership with Hope Academy, the Lions facility build out. Um, I yeah. don't know how much you may or may not have been involved with the original um, Lions shot towards MLR. Can you yeah. just, uh, whatever you have, can you share about, like, you know, the, the past sort of three years of that trajectory of focusing on building out what will be one of the best club facilities in the United States while yeah. focusing on that development project with Hope Academy. And then I guess the look at MLR when it was first starting and then, you know, backing off and just focusing on your grassroots initiatives.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, and there was a definite a crossroads where we had to pick one or the other, um, but yeah, I uh, I took a job. I mean, I got notified that the Lions were looking for someone. I missed the advertising, everything, and they the the candidate that they had took another job, and they were left empty-handed. And uh, and they're like, when can you start? And I was at a junior world, uh, not a world tournament, I junior championship in Florida with the Cayman Islands, where we play like Trinidad, Mexico, and stuff like that. And I was like, yeah, I can be there next week if you need. You know, I rang my girlfriend at the time. I was like, hey, like, what do you think of Chicago? And she's like, yeah, cool, let's go. Um, but I was sent a spreadsheet with 20, I think six or 28 names on it of guys that they thought were going to be returning players because it was marking, I think it was nine years post super league. So the, anyone that had played in that, there was one guy left that had played in super league. All those guys had retired out. And then the next wave of players were hitting their early thirties and they had like two props, four lock retirements, um, and, uh, you know, they had some great coaches in there. Tabu Elof, JP's older brother, played for the Eagles. He took a job in New York. And then David Fee was kind of in and around coaching and his medical sales career. Marty Wiggins, who was a forwards coach for the Eagles, was was deep into his construction. He was starting a family. And so they were in a bit of a flux, for sure, in terms of coaching. And, and um, also, like, from a participation level, they were an all-time low. I mean, it's a club that at one point in time probably had four or five sides um so to be handled a list of 26 so that was where it was i mean there was a women's sevens team which was like an ugly stepsister that the club didn't even acknowledge let's be fr- like that's the honest truth about it and the sevens program ran as a basically a gathering of like a lot of college students that got together during the summer and played under the lions umbrella so connect to those programs first and foremost um and then the all blacks came through for the ireland game um obviously epic Cubs win the World Series my first year in Chicago. Ireland beat the All Blacks two weeks later. Like, I'm like, this is the greatest city in the world. Um, but uh, I did some work with AI. Right?
0: Chicago is pretty awesome. It's I, a cool I city. That, uh, the triple header rugby weekend, yeah. I guess, what will be – man, it's been two years. I yeah. can't believe it's been two years since I was last in Chicago. But it was uh, – I mean – I guess the only thing I have to say about that, and this is sort of a segue, not a segue, but a tangent, is like with that weekend, like it was a huge weekend, but you would never have known rugby was actually being played at uh, Soldier Field that day when you were talking to people. So that's my criticism of what was going on. But there was yeah. a major junior hockey tournament in Chicago, and I saw a lot of that.
1: Yeah. Now That said, though, the, I, I would agree with you 100%. But the year before when the Cubs won the World Series and I was watching – what was it, the fifth biggest gathering of humans in history, like 5 million people in downtown Chicago for that, for that trophy tour. Every lamppost had um, Kieran Reed and Johnny Sexton up on it. Like oh, wow. it got, the first year that Ireland beat the All Blacks in Chicago, that got promoted heavily. Like they did a great job that year. And then the tripletter one definitely didn't get near the amount of promotion. Um, it was significant for me. Like I was watching, you know, the Cubs come through on an open bus tour surrounded by all Blacks who were at this luncheon. And, uh, you know, Chicago's like, get the hell out of my way, Kieran Reed, I want to watch Rizzo, you know? Um, so uh, <laughs> That's funny. it was funny because I was like, do you know who you just pushed out of the way? Um, but yeah, there was on the posters, I'm like, see that guy up there? That's who you just pushed out of the way so you could see Chris Bryant with the trophy. So it was really well publicized. But I mean, I guess the point is, um, I got to do some work through AIG and bring in the Maori team because they they played USA on the Friday night. Yeah, And I got to bring them out into schools and to a local park. And one of the park days that we did for AIG was at this park called Smith Park. And it's less than a mile from where the Lions play. And there was this vibrant youth program, Wapiti, practicing, playing games, all age groups, boys, girls, up to high school. And I, it blew my mind that this youth rugby sector and an adult men's rugby club were coexisting less than a mile from each other without knowledge of one or the other. These kids would not have known there's a, significant men's club down the road and the men's club wouldn't have been aware that there's a youth club down the road. So I'm like, that's so that was the
0: first like so you, light bulb you moment. You see that a lot in, in senior yeah. rugby here, especially, um, I want to say. Oh, six, oh, seven, um, UCLA, not UCLA, USA, Rugby went through a reorganization that, Included the hiring of Nigel Melville and they siloed everything. They broke college into its own thing. They broke youth rugby into its own thing. So you had this creation of all these different organizations to sort of govern smaller pieces of the pie. But that also, I mean, even though in general, I would say that youth programs, not most of them were already operating um, independently of senior men or senior women's clubs. Yeah. But it created, I would say, a bigger divide because now there was no connection unless you had one of those contiguous clubs that, I mean, the Lions now are, you guys have a lot, you have that connection now to youth rugby, but you're one of the few, yeah. that's one of the few clubs in America that can go from the, has an affiliation through other programs like that goes down to youth, like, you know, to like under 10s.
1: You know? Yeah, I mean, and that was strategic. I mean, like, we were trying to compete with, you know, Nyack, Old Blue, Austin, Hans, you know, Denver Barbarians, like the powerhouses, the Belmonts, life west of the world. And the biggest difference I saw was that most of them had a, like a, a solid rugby college that they could recruit from within their own city. And, like, Chicago doesn't. I mean, Illinois is – their campus is four 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 and a half hours south of Chicago. And then you've got the schools, like DePaul – um, you've got Northwestern. I mean, like they're not the strongest rugby program. So like they wouldn't, you wouldn't be recruiting D1 club players out of them. So the best way I could see it was like we develop our own youth program where they go off to life, Lindenwood, everywhere, and then they'll matriculate back to us and they'll be forever lions. So that was some of the thinking behind it. And, and at, at first, the program like was definitely serving like kids who were maybe two sport athletes. They were affluent North Side kids, predominantly, you know, Caucasian and like but that evolved so with the we had the land like our, I mean the, the Lions made some great decisions I can't take credit for what they've done years come by like they owned clubhouses properties back in the sixties so you know they have like the buying and selling of certain prop house um, facilities and having a bar in the 70s like they did some great things back in the day that set them up for success in the current era but it you know it gave them the capital to buy land at a time on the west side where they could buy land and that land value has increased dramatically in the last five years as that west side has gentrified somewhat then the partnership with chicago hope which is an inner city charter school um you know that was good but it was a loose alignment but i started coaching them and then i realized there was other kids in the area and we realized that like a lot of the money that we'd need to raise and this is where mlr came into it because we were at the round table with eight seven other clubs at that point because the initial mlr model was to use existing club brands and build professional teams out of them so They went to us and Glendale and others to like evolve into MLR clubs and it was a tough decision because our president at the time, Tony, came to me and was like, what do you want to do? Like, because we can go down this route, but we'd have to put our facility and our youth and your expansion plans on hold because if our alumni director funds towards this, or we can focus on your plan and see how this MLR thing works out if it's like PRO or whether it succeeds, And I I was of the mindset, like, let's build out the the base, you know, like, because it's easy to put in the cherry on top at the end. If we've got the youth, the academy, the men's club, the women's club, the stadium, the field, the training facilities, even if it's not from within our own donor base, someone will come in and go, it's easy to put a pro team in Chicago because they've got everything ready to go. We just need to be their anchor tenant, right? I'm shocked that it hasn't happened. And there was some advances, but nothing ever got serious. And that to this day blows my mind that no one – took the opportunity to try and start a franchise there. So um so we focus on the, faci- the facility and having grassroots rugby and a program that goes top to bottom and but we didn't where we were we didn't want to like ostracize the community. So we wanted to make sure that it was when we were going out to donors, corporations, when we started our capital raise that it was actually something that was doing something for that community, not just gentrifying it, but actually including the the kids in it. So we hired Andy Rose as a director of rugby he came over as a player as well from um, Zimbabwe born played rugby in Scotland at, at premiership level. And um, between myself and himself started a youth program. He did a lot of the boots and the groundwork. So if I was more like the ideas guy um, he did phenomenal work and got into one school, then two, then three, then four, then five. And then they became two, three times a week. And those kids attendance started coming up. And now those kids are like matriculating across so we, the youth and clubs. So, the youth is like the outreach program, after-schools program, and then if they really fall in love with rugby, they slide across into our club program, where it's your usual Tuesday and Thursday training, Saturday play games within your state organization. So what we started seeing is kids from the inner-city schools start integrating with the the traditional rugby kids from the north side, the white kids, and now you've got a much more diverse group playing as a group, and they started to actually get better. Because like the group we partnered with were like. Like some of the West Suburb kids are like big football kids, like they struggle the new rugby. But when we got in some athletes, um from the and these kids were tough, right? Like they, they grew up in a tough neighborhood. They're inherently like they're tough kids. And they just they were so gracious to have coaching and a new sport that, you know, channeled aggression and they learned so much from rugby's values. It, it was just a great mix. And the parents of the existing kids were so embracing to have these other kids come in, like they carpool to pick them up from wherever they're from is the parental involvement at times wasn't the same on the other side. So that just, that went through the roof. And then the facility launched, I think, six, about a year ago, we got it finished. Um, and, I mean, that's just a game changer because you have a home now, you have a clubhouse, even though it's, it's converted containers. But, you know, you've got a clubhouse, you got changing rooms, you've got bathrooms, and you can host events. And you can see the benefits of the one-club mentality and how much you can achieve. And now the membership, like if you were to look at um, – USA rugby's registration, whatever it is, you, um, there's probably six, 700 people who are registered as Chicago lions now. So it's a big difference from 26.
0: Yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty awesome. And, and you talk about this, uh, this infrastructure development program that you guys went in and you also talk about how, um, you know, it's there. So I think when the facility is fully built out, which you guys like there, it's pretty close, right? So, it's pretty close that I think once that's done, I mean, you have the ability to host an anchor tenant like almost immediately. And that also that, you know, the lions stay committed to, you know, their, their youth rugby stuff. And there was a, there was a, there was an article. I think it feels like, I mean, obviously coronavirus has shaped everything and it's, Mm. it's like the last six months have been five years, but uh, I think it may have been only 18 months ago uh, when you were still there is that there was a, I think there was a shooting and the Hope Academy had a game on a Friday and uh, the other school canceled and you guys went and played a, I guess a rugby game against the, the the senior club team came down, and you guys played a rugby game instead of a football game against uh, your most of your Hope Academy program guys.
1: Yeah, there was. A, I was down there. It was a Friday night game, and uh, myself and one of my assistant coaches. We were um, building a coaching box scoreboard thing for me to sit up in, and like I like to be away from the action and up high. So we were just doing some woodwork. And next thing, we knew, the game was on, and we were going to go over maybe in the second quarter and. Next thing we hear a shot, and um, he's like, that was a gunshot. That wasn't fireworks. And uh, and then subsequently there was a shooting like 50 feet from the entrance to the football field. Oh and uh, and I guess what happened was a lot of it, the, they had just moved up. They had a great coach, Matt Kelly, who's our brother Rice now. And they'd moved up a couple of conferences and they were really taking on some bigger schools. But all the schools canceled on them, the rest of their schedule. Um, and I think that the Bears came in and offered them to practice at Soldier Field a team out in California actually offered to fly them out. They said, we'll play you come out here. We'll play you. And, and then our guys and and some of the parents and the coaches, they did like a little scrimmage thing. And they had a fundraiser where there was like, it was more like a family day. There was like some rugby guys with some flag football, some rugby going on. There was a grill. And, um, you know, people came by and gave some donations and like Bob Muzikowski is the, the principal and founder of that school. I mean, he's phenomenal at what he does and what he's achieved. His story itself is exceptional. So, yeah i mean that it gives context to like where we are i mean that i mean hate to say it but like the sound of gunshots was normalized for me um i heard it so frequently that i didn't even flinch at it anymore but the neighborhood's changing and you know for once now rugby has such an opportunity to give these kids opportunity and for the neighbors to feel and it's been it's look i'm obviously super excited to be at ucla but it still really warms my heart. Like even during coronavirus, like when the Lions are all giving out masks or giving out old computers that have been recycled so that the kids in the neighborhood can do online classes and whatnot. And um, they were running activity and online summer camps for the kids in the community during coronavirus to keep them active. So like, I'm happy that the club was in a position where it's of such strength that I was ready to move on, but there was systems in place that that club's just going to go from trend to trend. And uh, so it was a good time to move on
0: awesome so now we get to you know ucla you take over uh in i guess early spring um things are still sort of kind of humming and you know you pl- how many games did you coach or was it just one this year no i got
1: i mean i got four or five i was there for the Dennis store arrived i hadn't started yet and then i got um cal arizona st mary's and um, utah um so got those games under my belt but i mean i had one week with the team i think before the Cal game or two um and I, I mean i was just transitioning some visa stuff over from the lions to ucla and uh we were about to like do a big push like announce the new coach blah 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 and then coronavirus kind of took over everything so yeah i mean it was exciting um we were definitely seeing some progression i i think um we brought in alex corbicero who did scrum work with us and we did, we increased the amount of training we were doing. We added strength and conditioning. We added video analysis and, um, you know, got the, the program up to where it needed to be in terms of key ingredients. And I mean, the first four weeks, we just focused on attack shape, like how we want to play. They already played, like their sevens team are very strong. And we had a game plan that we think suits their style. We, we run a, a four, three, two, one, the same as the Crusaders where we, we try and keep the ball alive. We try and play quickly. We try and play with good width. Four, three, two, one.
0: I've never. Whoa, whoa. whoa. We, t- we gotta. We gotta break. Break this down. That's a. That's a. That's a. That's a ten man shape. What's going on here? i, oh, I 3 sorry. Two, three, two, 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 one. Sorry. Two, um, two, two so three. 2 two, three, two, so, one. Yeah.
1: So for okay. the, for years, like the Crusaders, I mean, they were the first to do it, and then Pat <laughs> did it with Connacht, but they were on the two four two structure with the you know, you got your your pops and your locks in the middle and you've got like a hooker and an eight and a six and a seven on the far side and that's been adopted by another other team some teams are on one three three ones and they're probably the most common trends but i had some time around some people from the crusaders a couple of years ago and and um studied a lot of their footage since um, scott robertson took over and, and they started winning super rugby's for the last three years and now era as well so their fourth time in a row and if you see how their game plan evolved, it's not even though they're famed for their two four two, they're not actually ever running in a four-man pattern.
0: If you so. look at I mean, just systems, because that's not I mean the 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 one you I think you saw in MLR, uh, I, I guess the system-wise, the biggest ones obviously are the two four two yeah. and the one three three one. And yeah. um you started seeing in MLR this year a lot of uh one three two two um yeah. action and so that's a new one i'm gonna have to pay more attention when i watch the crusaders now I'm, yeah, obviously yeah. they don't yeah. obviously their game was canceled against the blues but i mean that's yeah. a different shape to add and i think well, you know it gives you
1: so you i can i've, I've got videos on huddle of breaking it oh, down right. guys, I, guys,
0: I, I, i'm such a nerd so if no, you watch it you'll see check, like the main me.
1: difference is like one of their locks or props is mobilizing himself up to the next pod and what you will inevitably have is Richie Moanga or Braden Aynor sitting in behind that pod back door because They play with such width, and they've got exceptional back three talent. And it, it, I'm not picking it because I, lo- I do love the Crusaders and I love the way they play. But I love the Crusaders their, too. So. Their, their strength is their backline. I mean, their yeah. backline are nearly by their scrum half of all and Will Jordan, who's an emerging all back, I think, are nearly all back. So. Um, so, and our sevens team and how they translate into our 15s team, like our, our studs are in our back line as well. So, we want a, a shape that allows us to play wide, allows us to be mobile, allows us to be quick, allows us to play, you know, where we, we sit defenses down by having pods flat to the game line where we can play quick and fat and fast, fat and fast. Um, but also with loads of backdoor opportunities that we can get wide, get with around teams. Like, there's in the college game, the time of year that the Packs played, I mean, are we playing? hard surfaces, warm weather, line speed is high, right? Surfaces yep. are fast. So there's a lot of tr- fast tracks underneath you when you're playing and, you play and the teams can get really in your face. You're not playing like in Ireland where it's boggy, wet ground. Like yeah. you're playing on fast tracks over here in the pack. So teams' abilities to like try and prevent us going wide are, are enabled by having some really good line speed, um, you know, and, and really running blitz outside in defenses, pack, whatever they want to run. Um, so we, we want a system that allows us to play quickly, have some d runners, allow us to play flat, but also have loads of optionality to play wide. And and I mean, our guys are like, it's a pro and a con. It's a con in that it's extremely difficult to get into the university in, in UCLA. Like we had a 3.9 GPA average last year, it was 4 point something this year. But inherently, you've got one of the smartest rugby teams I'll ever coach. So you give them something like that. And I'm sure there'll be people even watching today been like, you know, you just need to focus on the basics. And I would be in agreement with them. If I was a high school coach, when I was a club coach in the Lions, we were much more basic in game plan, but our guys are incredibly intelligent and I can do something more complex with them because they, they've got the aptitude to take that on and put it in action straight away. And that's been such a blessing coaching them. I think
0: watching UCLA for the past couple of years, because I've, I've, paid a lot of attention especially when they come play U of A and previously when they came to ASU when ASU was still in the pack before dropping down this past year mm-hmm. and um you know you what you have is what I found out they played U of A for that international rugby weekend fixture in LA um a couple of years ago and I watched them and I was I was in, I happened to luckily interestingly be in a box and <laughs> with some people and a bunch of UCLA parents were in there and I was talking to them cause I, I knew how hard it was to get into UCLA because I applied to go to UCLA back in, Oh man, like 2006. So this is, the, I mean, this is dating all of us. Right. So, yeah. um, you know, and, like it was, it's, it was hard to get into school. And I was thinking, you know, you're not like, you're probably having to recruit a lot on campus. And then I was talking to some of the parents. They're like, every, pretty much every single one of these guys has played high school rugby at least one year, which was actually good to hear in general. But then again, like that, that really, if you're, if you as a coach are going after high achieving um, players to recruit, that means um, rather, I mean, it's really hard to, if you're recruiting, right, you're the recruiting on-campus athletes that you just, you know, you have to be in the quad just taking notes, hoping you see a tall lock, you know, just walking around that's not playing football yeah. or basketball. Yeah. And, yeah. and I'm just going, wow, if everyone, and you guys, you have a lot of, you have a lot of talent that has come through UCLA, especially in the backs. Yeah. Um, and we'll talk about some of the forwards you got because you've got, you've got a stud at tight head. Um, that we'll talk about that is, yeah. you know, but like, so, you know, if you talk about like Ben Brozell, Key and Barry or Eric yeah. Naposky most recently. So a bunch of guys that have, you know, that have played all American sevens that have played Falcon sevens, you know, you've, you've got a lot of really talented players. And I think in general, you're just, uh, I think we were talking a little bit about that beforehand is like, you just got to get these guys to eat food and lift weights, um, because uh you're a little bit smaller but since you started like since you took over the program and delved heavily into recruiting which is a little bit different than ncaa recruiting yeah what like obviously most of the kids that were probably coming to ucla were, were previously recruited my guess and you're looking more towards next year and the year after yeah, that
1: correct so like our um our recruiting application window is finishes the end of november so like the the incoming class I had nothing to do with. I mean, they had already been accepted into the school. Um, by the time I got started, essentially, so, um, we we've got eight or nine guys coming in. A couple of guys from rugby schools in Connecticut. Um, guy was played at Gonzaga. A couple of guys from Bay Area, but not like rich pedigree rugby players, but guys who have played like high level high school football and delved in rugby somewhat. So, but the recruiting that I'm doing now, and I've got extra time on my hands to do it, is trying to find. The guys through our channels, through building relationships with high schools or clubs around the country and internationally. I mean, I've got a call tomorrow with a kid from a, high, a private high school in Korea um, that plays rugby. So, wow. but, you know, find guys that have some sort of rugby pedigree, some rugby IQ to begin with, that, that there's a good baseline and academically and financially they've got the capacity to come study at UCLA. So, um, yeah, it's tough. I mean, on, on campus recruitment, I mean, I haven't had a real crack of that because. We got shut down pretty quickly but i mean it will be i mean ucla is 30 percent international students right and a lot of them come from countries um you know east asian countries where rugby is growing at a, at a rapid rate so there's yeah. gotta be kids on campus who have maybe played high school rugby in japan and in hong kong um i mean one day did, you'll laugh at this but like i was up in one of our canteen areas that's like a patio and i'm looking down into the courtyard on the Bruin walk and there's this guy walking through head to toe in Hong Kong cricket club rugby gear, which is like the biggest <laughs> rugby club in Hong Kong. That's and awesome. he's a big tall guy with dreadlocks. And I wanted to like almost throw a rock because I knew I wouldn't get down there quickly enough. But I ran down. I'm like, the guy was gone. But I'm like, I put out an SOS to our team. I'm like, if you guys see like a six foot two dreadlock guy with Hong Kong cricket club rugby tracksuit head to toe, recruit him. Like there's a rugby player walking on campus that's not playing for us. Find him. Um, and we were lucky we found another kid that played in um, San Francisco Golden Gate who had just hadn't yep. stumbled across the rugby team and he's a lock I think he's 6'5 six, 6'6 six, six, and we don't have any height in our team so I met him, and I'm like, you're starting. <laughs> okay.
0: I think, you know, you you run into, like, especially with a major state college like UCLA, it's a high academic achieving school. and But one of the things that I think college rugby has struggled with somewhat is that a lot of high school rugby is – going towards a high performance type model, especially the ones that are going to kids that are going to rugby schools all over the place, whether it's Texas, Connecticut, New York, yeah. um, California, even, or Indiana um where guys are, you know, they're in a high performance system where it's three to four days a week and a game, yeah. you know, like, do they, are th- these kids are like, how would I say this? They're like American football kids and they go, they want to go play a sport in, a, a high performance system where they get coached a lot where they train where they just eat it rather than go and practice maybe two days a week and drink a lot I mean that's the difference
1: yeah and I that was a, one of the my big my first thing was I want to build relationships with the top clubs and I, I when I rang whether it's Jesuit Gonzaga some of the top high school programs Indiana um Catholic all those programs right and I talked to a lot of those coaches and a lot of them were quite frank with me. They're like, our program operates probably at a higher level than UCLA has been operating. So when our kids go out there, if they get in there, it's actually a drop off for them. Like we're a varsity sport in our school. We've got an SNC coach. We've got a mental skills coach. We've got a full-time director of rugby. Our guys are in the weight room in the morning, recovery in the afternoon, training after. I'm like, whoa, that is it. So my immediate goal is to make sure that no kid, irrespective of what high school program he comes or how high performance it is, that it's ever a drop off coming to our college program. Um, you know, and and move us, elevate us out of that club bracket. You know, like our men's rowing team and our men's rugby team sit as competitive, like Olympic sports, kind of above our other fifty-six sports. But we need to separate that gap and narrow the gap in terms of how we perform to the to the football program and to the basketball program. So, um, taking in, and we we've made inroads there because, like, I uh, I know you're going to talk about him in a while, but our tight head prop came across from the football program, and I was very fortunate through a connection of mine in the golden eagles. I got to spend some time with our football coach at the LA sevens. And then the, the resulting few weeks at football practice. And, you know, for me, realistically be able to go up to to coach Kelly and say like, when you cut guys or when walk-ons don't make it, I want you to, you know, shepherd them over to rugby. Like I have to have a program. That's not a million miles. Like it's gotta be organized. It's gotta be structured. It's gotta be professional. There's gotta be S and C. There's gotta be video. like, you've probably got to eliminate dues, frankly. Like, if you're going to get a guy that was a football guy and he's going to come across to rugby, you can't be telling him, hey, like, you know, you get a one-week trial and then we need your money. So, but, I mean, that's where we're working towards. And I'm hoping that that relationship with the football program is when you say we're at its strongest, you know, and I was talking to Coach Clark at Cal, he's like, "Back, like, when you're strong, we're strong. And back in the day, years ago, like, they had some real battles. But when Slay was strong, it was when they had the best connections with the football program and they were getting – some real athletes, because there's a the skill, there's the intellect, there's the prestige. But when you, you add in that last ingredient of some real stud athletes in the flanker, lock, tight head prop roles, now you're competitive.
0: It's interesting because, like, especially with the way rules and systems have been in place for the NCAA, when I was in college, trying to get some of the, um, I guess, some of the senior uh, you couldn't really do it with underclassmen, but trying to get some yeah. of those seniors that had just finished um, like football, i um, yeah. trying to get them to play as an underclassman. Guess what? At least if, where I went to college at VMI, we were division one FCS varsity athletes could not play club sports mm. period. Yeah. period. Yeah. And I think that's a, that's a problem. Like, whereas like, if you go back to the eighties, Back when, you know, I guess Jack Clark, you know, like Jack Clark went to Cal to play uh, football and he also played rugby at the same time, which is Uh, rather insane. But that didn't happen. That doesn't happen today. And I think, I guess the, the question I always have with coaches is a lot of people out there have this opinion that we shouldn't try to recruit football athletes. Mm hmm. Obviously, you're going in and talking to Coach Kelly and say, hey, because I mean, yeah. I, I talked I talked to this about mags and like the reality is, is like that's where our best rugby players are going right now. Is they're going yeah. to a division one sport that is not rugby, period? Yeah. And Agreed. so how do you get them back or how do you have an environment that is on campus if they're at one of those schools? where it's even remotely similar. And if your relationship, like you just talked about, like if your relationship is good with, you know, the football team and even let's say the basketball team, even, and some guy either cuts or just doesn't want to play anymore and stays in college, but he wants to be play competitive sport. You get a highly physically developed athlete from going into the S and C environment that is in football and basketball today that you just sort of, I mean, have to teach them some rugby skills. And in certain positions, there's a yeah. lot less skills you have to teach. Yeah. And you get all the physical attributes that a football player will give you.
1: Yeah, uh, no, I I've done a, I'll be honest and say that I've done a complete U-turn on my mindset towards this. If you had asked me three years ago, I think we it's might have probably,
0: traded some barbs on Twitter about this three years ago. You know what I mean? It's like, I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I'm like, I, I've, I've done a U-turn
1: on it. I, I was like, no, like we need to develop rugby players that want to play rugby and they need to have a rugby IQ. You know, I read that bounce book on the principles of like deliberate practice, a 10,000 hour rule, all this stuff. Like everything I'd researched and read was about hours accumulated of deliberate practice in a sport leading to excellence. And so I was like, no, we need to focus on grassroots rugby program, blah, blah, blah having been around the collegiate scene and seen the disparity in athleticism has been one factor in me changing my opinion, but also the prevalence of like the growth that is happening at rugby is like you're not actually taking a football player. As you correctly said, you're taking a football player who played rugby before, whether it was for like, you know, spring of his senior year or when he was in middle school, like they've played the game. So like even the guys that we're getting coming in this September none of them have never played rugby before. They just played football for the last three years and dabbled in rugby or played rugby before. I mean, hell there's guys on our football team that played rugby growing up, you know, in Tonga. So like they're out there and I know JD Stevenson's doing a great job at at, at trying to track them on a, on a national level. And and there's some initiatives with world rugby that nearly took place um, where we're trying to, See where those guys are going, you know, and and because like that,
0: that, what is it, point zero one percent of guys go to the NFL? I've, so. I've talked to JD about this a little bit, back and forth. And my biggest thing, and I've talked to Mags about this, and I was like, how do does the union specifically, because there are rules about other things like amateurism that sort of like it's yeah. very weird with the NCAA. But I I'm I'm tracking some kids right now because I'm not that I'm bored, but I mean yeah. they, they were local to me mm-hmm. in Arizona. They're both, they're two twin brothers. They originally yeah. are originally from Zimbabwe, but they've yeah. grown up here, played rugby, played football. They're both division one football athletes right now. Yeah. How does I, the union has done a very poor job. Um, in, I would say the past five, six years, probably forever, but let's just say the past five, six years, just tracking those guys. Cause not every one of them is going to play in the NFL. Yeah. How do we just keep, having touch points and just have a conversation be like, Hey man, how you doing? Thinking about, um, you know, especially if they're the high school American types, because these two dudes, one of them, yeah. one of the brothers was a high school American. And then he yeah. goes to Washington state and yeah. he goes to play for like, how do you get him back for u-, u 20s camp? Because if he's a high school American the next year, he's not going to have forgotten how to play rugby. Yeah. Like, he's just going to be bigger. Yeah. I mean, I
1: think, I mean, you need a carrot, right? And I think we need some viable options for them to to actually parachute back into. Like, we're all passionate about rugby and we want them to come back to our beloved sport. But I mean, you know, what's the top salary in the MLR? You know what? But now there's, things have changed, right? There's an Olympic opportunity. That's huge. And I know Mags would probably be in line with me on that one and say like, opportunity to not make it maybe in college football or not make it to the nfl if you can slide across and you've got an olympic dream that's a game changer and now as we see the mlr grow it becomes better and better every year and hopefully the next step in the next 12 to 24 months is a salary cap increase so that if someone is to be lured back to our sport it's not to go play in france it's to come and play at their local mlr site right because at the moment if you had a top guy like if you had another joe, joe Taffete playing D1 football somewhere right now and he decided to come back to rugby, he's going to France or England. He's going playing for Worcester or Poe or Biarritz, right? Because someone will give him, you know, three hundred thousand a year just on the basis of his size. So we need to... and eventually I think we'll oh, get we him see back this. across.
0: We we see this the your your mother country is is scouting the and scouring the American rugby landscape and with project I gotta, players. I Roman, uh, I mean, uh, I mean, Roman's that monster. Yeah, yeah I, and, uh, I, I know how those contracts work, sadly.
1: On the other side, then there's a there's a profit Munster as well. Jerry Lockman, um, Jeremy Lockman, who's actually U.S. qualified. So I know USA would be tracking him because if he doesn't get capped for Ireland in the next four to six years, he could be playing for the Eagles. So monster of two or three U.S. eligible players at the moment. But i um, I mean, yeah, everyone's doing it, but I actually, funny enough, I got an earful about Joe Taufeli because Ray was coaching him at Belmont. At the time I visited, um, Joe was playing for Belmont and the Eagles were already in camp for the World Cup and he hadn't been brought in yet. And I was chatting to Mags because I had just been done a week with the Sevens team and they were going to the Pan Am Games. And uh, Ray was like, hey, man, like, can you come to practice and look at this guy, Joe? Because at the time, Stefan Armitage, I don't know if you remember him, he played England yeah. flanker. Went down to France and he was European player of the year, but he was this new burly six ball carrying, like he was a whole new breed of a number six. And Ray was like, Do you think he could be a world class hooker or like a new age Stefan Armitage and go play in Europe? And at the time, Munster were, I think, going to even bring Joe over for a trial. And Ray and and myself and Mags, we were exchanging some texts, whatever. And Ray and I think Mag's coordinated for him to get a rental car and drive up to USA camp, and the rest is history. I mean, he went to the World Cup, picked and went against South Africa, and ran up the field. And, never, and he's been a—he's now what a World Player of the Year nomination. But yeah, it was funny because I went in that next summer. Um, Anthony Foley, who was like a friend, like he passed, and Rossi Erasmus came in as monster coach, and I went back home and I got to meet him and and some of his support staff, and I brought him and came into his office and his first thing he said to me after like asking me how I knew Axel and everything was, um, tell me this, why didn't you tell me about this American hooker?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I just, I think that like when it comes, like you're, you're talking about that, like the carrot, I think, you know, MLR is in, in a good place right now. And I, I understand that the, the dollars and cents may not all be there, but I've, I, I will say that being an American that, um, and I talk about this on, I guess the air dirt channel. And I tell this people, I tell this all the time. All of these guys have friends that play baseball. Yeah. All of these guys have friends that have suffered for the cause for the tune of $6,000 for a year to try and make it to the show. Yeah. And so for, if these, for the guys that truly love rugby and mm-hmm. you're seeing this go on very, very awesomely with the draft and how excited these guys yeah. were for that connection and just that to to have the same experiences as many of their friends had growing up getting drafted for a sport cuz everyone knows an elite athlete yeah. like the, like you you go to high school with some elite athlete that was good in in basketball or good in football or like i know people who made it to the nfl like, that's cool yeah. but yeah. i'm not, i'm nothing but then you look at these rugby guys that are elite athletes they get to go through a draft yeah. And for a few, like, and they've all seen the, their baseball or hockey friends that, you know, I guess suffered for the cause and hoping that they could make it to the show. And I think the salaries, for the most part, are in line with minor league baseball. And I understand it's not awesome. Yeah. But for a lot of these guys who, go to a decent rugby college that doesn't saddle them with debt, AKA like a life or a Linden Wood. Um, you know, they can go play rugby for a few years. And then I guess the carrot is the national team, but we need to get the national team uh, funding in a way that, you know, pays both the men and women 15s, you know, more than a hundred dollars a day. Yeah. Right. So that, so that becomes an additional carrot. Right. But I think if you look the top U S players that were in the MLR, I guess if they were just full- time rugby players, you know, this last year made and I guess because you know, hundred dollars a day ends up being like 10 grand over the entire period if they were in camp the whole time, which is yeah. an okay amount of money for playing rugby in the United States. It's not amazing, yeah. but for the young guys specifically, it it's enough to get it started. Yeah. And then I do agree with you. I mean, I think they're. it's all about, you know, all the insurance and all that other stuff in a startup league, just trying to be sustainable.
1: You know? Yeah. Yeah. I just love to see that it gets to the point where the salary cap gets to the point where we see some of the marquee signings being, bring our Americans home. You know, we get Tony Lamborn coming back. We get Joe Taufetti coming back. We get AJ McGinty playing in America. Maybe he's 35, 36, but like, does a couple of years back playing with New England or something, right? It would be great to see that, like, with the Salary Cup that we start getting the Beckham effect, but it's like bringing home our stud eagles and they're all playing in our domestic league. And hopefully that bridges a gap where you've got AJ, you've got Tony Lamborne, you've got some of these guys playing in the MLR and a young eagle, like a 23-year-old that got his first cap, maybe he thinks twice about having to go abroad. Maybe he's like, no, I can have a viable professional career here and stay playing for my national team. And then the national team, with as you like rightly pointed out, with more funding and within the seasonality and the windows or whatever, has like Gary Gold would have a bigger opportunity to have his team in regular camps or one days or touch points with them because they're all in the same country. Like I can't even imagine trying to coordinate a Zoom right now. Like he's got Bracky in (laughs) Australia, guys in French time zone, English time zone, West Coast, like there's a 13 hour time difference between one eagle and the next, right? So yeah. Um, yeah, it, I think it would create opportunity. And like you look at what happened with the Jaguars and how that affected Argentinian rugby in the championship. Like if USA rugby ever got to the point where like either there's an MLR all star team or all the Eagles are playing in the MLR, they're all playing professional. But I mean, even just the fact that like they went to a World Cup this last year with a team where every single player was professional for the first time ever, that's massive inroads for me. Like I was. When I even in my short-lived time in America, when I took over the Lions, J.P. Eloff and Angus McLeod were Eagles, but they were training one day a week, driving from Grand Rapids, Michigan, two and a half, three hours to train with the Lions on a Thursday night and then playing games. And then they're flying off to Argentina or Colombia or something to play a Falcons tour, playing international rugby. And I'm ringing the coach, being like, this guy has got one session a week for the last three weeks under his belt. That's all he's done. So like, you know, but you know, look after (laughs) it. So yeah, it's, it's, it's come a long way and I, and I hope it will continue to grow. And I hope, I think it's going to be a weird year for MLR and for the college guys, because I think a lot of those draft picks uh, that are American will get severely low pay packages that while they create salary space for the marquee signings that they need to drive the league forward. But, I just hope over time that we don't lose those guys. You know that they that they stay interested and the league grows at a rate that that keeps them in it. You know, so because I want my guys that graduate UCLA, I want that if they and Barry this year, if Eric and others go next year, I want them to be able to join a league that's just about to you know explode in a good way. Not.
0: Oh yeah, not know. <laughs> not enough.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, it's uh, it, it's. I
0: think like the. You know, if you look at everything, it's like, what, where do you invest? There's been a lot of, um, you know, back and forth when MLR started is like, oh, you need to, these people need to invest in the grassroots. And at the end of the day, it's like for, for private investment, these guys, some of them have invested hundreds of thousands of dollars before they ever, um, you know, decided to do MLR. They've invested in youth rugby. They've invested in club rugby. This is just you. You need a professional outlet domestically for the sport to grow um, yeah. at the senior level. You need a commercial outlet, and at the same time, many of them are still investing in youth rugby. But yeah. the if you don't have, and this is where like I, I've now that I've been involved with it and covering it for so long is okay if they just invest a little bit in youth rugby at that time, rather than doing both, I would say, right. Then, um, you know, you, who is going to, if if it's not them, who's it going to be? Because we already saw one guy do it and it was bad. And so far, I mean, even though the league didn't have to, because it may or may not have made business sense to yeah. pay the players' salaries out, they the, the 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 owners of the league voted to pay salaries in full, which is yeah. impressive because that is not what it occurred in any other league in the no. world. Yes, the egg was a little bit smaller, but that did not occur in any other league in the world of any sport. Yeah. So yeah. they yeah, they they made that business decision. So yeah.
1: And I know we touched on it the other day, but it's great seeing someone like, I don't know him personally, but is it Kieran Farmer down at Houston? I mean, I think he's 21 and he's signing in for his fourth season in professional rugby. I mean, his development must be, you know, so great in that time, training around Sam Windsor and some other marquee players in Houston. And I think we'll see more of that, you know, and I think we touched on it the other day, but, um, you know, the balance between the academy structure where they take someone young into professional ranks, but... How do they align with the colleges? That's going to be the next one that we try and figure out. Like, yeah. I think for me and for all of us as a college coaches, like, you know, there was never something to prepare them for afterwards. And that's my mindset as a coach at UCLA. I want to develop the players to be the best of their ability. Um, it's not an outcome goal that they go play MLR,
0: yeah,
1: but I, it's an outcome goal for me that they are the best they can be after four years of development under my coaching. Yeah. And if that leads to them being an Eagle or being an MLR player, fantastic. If that yeah. leads them to being like, an exceptional club player at Santa Monica or Belmont, great. If they never play rugby again, I could be unfortunate. But if they've enjoyed playing collegiate sports and maximize whatever athletic potential they have, then I've done my job. So I
0: I think for you specifically not touching on MLR and more focusing on the collegiate athlete experiences, Uh, the the quote from that I shared with you is from Ray Anderson, vice president for athletics here at Arizona state um, where I just finished. I'm going to plug, I'm going to plug that. My, my sure. master's in sports law. But um, he said to us, like, the purpose of collegiate athletics at Arizona State is leadership development through athletic competition. Yeah. And the purpose of college in America and the purpose of collegiate athletics is if there is a professional outlet, if there is a professional outlet, colleges job and university jobs Exists to develop people, develop young men and women, because there are few female-based professional leagues now. Uh, it wasn't yeah. the case, you know, twenty years ago. But in yeah. in softball, in basketball, in soccer, I think there's a women's hockey league. Um, but in in a bunch of different sports and in running, um, individual sports, there are professional outlets for men and women to to work in. And the point of collegiate athletics is to offer a chance of education in the classroom and also athletic development that prepares them for the workforce if they so choose to pursue athletic endeavors professionally. And that is where, you know, college rugby now has to, we talked a little bit about this is like what I've had a few discussions about this, like on the rugby coaches group on Facebook. And I say, what do we want college rugby to be? Because now there is a professional outlet. So do Mm -hmm. we want rugby and you talk about like you never want your program to be a step down for any player that comes to to, that you've recruited or that you can get from another sport on campus. You you need to be close to the guys that have varsity sports. So now it's like, so what do we want college rugby to be? And UCLA is in a great position having hired you and having great alumni to provide a great environment for young student athletes but it's not just about the UCLA or the cows or the Lindenwoods or the Dartmouths or the, or the life's it's about the the whole picture. And yeah. I think it's, we need to get past and not for, it's not, it's not your job to do this because you are working yeah. very hard to make sure UCLA um, not only stays where it is, but continues to gain and you know, becomes like a a Cal or Lindenwood where it is or more like, I guess more so like Cal where you you just have money coming in, you know, I mean, your alumni are doing great stuff, but that you are at a consistent high-performance environment where you can also just have a lot of student athletes that just want to play college rugby, you know? Um, And so... It's it's not really a question for you, but how do you think now that you're getting into it? It's like, how do we shape college rugby for the future so that it now that there is a professional athlete outlet to to prepare young men for the workforce, which is could, which could be if they choose yeah. to play in the MLR?
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess twofold. I mean, we need more schools playing at a higher level. I mean, that list, that top twenty needs to be a top fifty. Um, you know even within our network like it would be great to have more of the UC schools have robust rugby programs that would be a huge step up for us if UC Irvine and you know and all the there is other UC schools that are rugby programs of like if they went through strengths if they hired full-time coaching like that would be a a massive growth factor for us Um, and then like from like developing better players I think we need to have more better competition I mean like that's a feedback that I got from a lot of my players is that you know, we play Cal once a year. We play St. Mary's this year, with first time in six years, I think. We played Arizona. We had a close game with them. And then you've got a playoff game. And any given year for a UCLA player, they might have had four games that were like highly competitive or like against a much higher opponent. And the learning that they go on, that they undertake during that game and review all of it is massive. Then you've got the disparity in some of the other teams we might play where we're the ones putting 50, 60 points on them. And you don't play enough high level competition. Like, I would love a 10 game season where we're playing all those teams you mentioned Dartmouth, RV, Lindawood, Like, our guys would get better every single week if we could play more, t- better teams more frequently. And same with Sevens, right? I think the CRCs was a fantastic event. It would be even better if there was another Sevens tournament two weeks later because everyone would go away with a load of learnings, research, um, review, come back, and we'd have a Sevens tournament at a way higher standard. Um, but it's just like this snapshot of like some guys have rushed from a 15s campaign, like a Lindenwood or a Cal probably have about two weeks to get ready from playing a national final to playing CRCs. So the seasonality question needs to, at some point, I'm trying to stay out of it, but at some point, I, that am a,
0: I have been very public about this. Um, Fall Sevens. And spring fifteens because they're yeah. I, and it, a lot of it has to do with broadcast windows and trying to make this a commercial endeavor on the collegiate side so that there can yeah. be more support driven into programs yeah. that isn't just delivered off of the backs of donors and the the people that get to coach at the lucky schools that support um, varsity rugby. But yeah. there is just this, there is a there is a gap and there, there's a reason why I guess the CRC is played in the spring. Yeah. And the reason well, why, it was, why it was previously played on a holiday weekend that had no other sporting event on it. It was yeah. because when it was put on NBC 10 yeah. years ago is because there was nothing on that weekend. And that's why they had the CRC. And yeah. that's sort of kind of once you're, once you're done with March Madness, um, obviously you're starting to compete against the College World Series now that that has become a, yeah. a much larger commercial product. But once you're done with March Madness, there is kind of this sort of broadcast, I guess, hell, um, abyss that rugby in general. And this is why I think MLR chose to go in the spring originally is like that is where the broadcast gap is. And you're not focused on, um, you know, football, because I think you've seen this, especially like football is a cultural phenomenon that is probably only second to rugby in, like, you, the best comparison is rugby in New Zealand, as yeah. far as like where rugby is culturally. Mm-hmm. um You know, you go into states like Texas or Alabama or Mississippi or Florida, and things just close down. Like, they just yeah. close down. Yeah. California is a little bit different, but if you go to a high school on a Friday in LA, I bet you there's a football game on, and I bet you, depending on which one you go to, There's at least six or 700 people, maybe a couple thousand, depending on the school, that are watching this football game. And Mm -hmm. so football, and I've tried to explain this, that with the NFL on Thursday and Monday, you have high school football that's also in a lot of states goes Thursday through Saturday. Saturday morning, usually they don't play Saturday night games unless it's like playoffs. And but football just controls the country culturally in the fall. Like it just yep. does. And yep. that's and – so, and for me, as a former football player and now rugby, rugby player and rugby fan, guys – like we just have to understand our country culturally. I think rugby can fit very well in this culture – in our culture because we love contact yeah. sports. We do. I agree. It's just stop trying to fight against the other sport that is very similar to me. That's my opinion.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I've had a high school athlete yesterday and a coworker today ask me the same question. When does rugby happen? I'm like, well, that's a complicated answer because we play in the fall, we play in the spring, we play in the winter. Some teams do fall, we do winter, blah, blah, blah. Like the sport, I think at some point needs an identity like every other American sport where you can categorically say to someone in a Starbucks, rugby's played in the spring. You know, like period. College, yeah. MLR, everything. Our main, what's your main season? Spring. Answered.
0: Done. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's sort of. I because I remember because a lot of people in rugby that are involved now they want to play the whole year. Yeah. And I'm like, guys, um, how many days do you train though? Are oh, you only train two days? Yeah. Or are you train one day a week and you have a game? I. How about we play? And this is and because it's interesting you bring in these coaches that coach like club or high school or, or even college overseas, and they come into a high school program and they watch the basketball program they watch the, they watch the football program. They're like, Whoa, you guys train a lot. Like you yeah. you guys don't play a lot, but you train a lot. And I'm like, yeah, because the only way to get as good as when I was in high school back in, I, th- I think we're about the same age in, uh, you know, like 2003 to 2006, the amount of video work that we did every fall when I was mm-hmm. um, playing football was a lot. Like I had three, like every lunch, every day at lunch, because this was before you had a uh, personal huddle systems to where you could just have the app on your phone. And yeah. like, they still do lunchtime video analysis in my high school, but now kids also have to do their own video work. In addition to that, like I yeah. think the only guys that were doing extra video work was the quarterbacks. At the time yeah. when I was in high school. So, I mean, that's sort of what you're competing against in and what you're preparing against in this country. And I think the more we learn from football, the better we can be. And then we can also, I mean, there are plenty of le- lessons that we try to teach football, right? My biggest thing is we're both contact sports. We're basically both tied at the hip and we both play with a ball that's shaped shape the same. The difference is, you know, one kid gets thrown in the air and one doesn't. Yeah. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean,
1: yeah, I, it's been a source of pride for me coaching over over the last three or four years when I can effectively use a American sporting example for a movement, and I'm absolutely pumped about it when I can get it done. The guys are like, "Good job!" Like, whether it's like a basketball layup for an aerial tap back in sevens, they're like, "That's a great example." Yeah, you know, when they go, "Ah, oh, light bulb!" So, um,
0: so yeah, for you, I mean, so obviously you've coached age grades. So let's talk about. Um, getting the opportunities, you coaching U.S. women's age grade. How did, I mean, um, most recently uh, All-American Sevens uh, head coach, I think, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So how did, I mean, all those experience, like you've obviously dealt, of course, women and not um, college men, but how do you, you know, you've dealt with a lot of college age students, um, I guess, in the off season um, Mm -hmm. for national programs. How did you get your I guess, get stuck into the women's um, national team pathway. Um, Yeah. um,
1: I'm going to think about that. Uh, I shadowed on a tour with the men's Falcons with JD and um, Adrian Ferris coaching and Blendell a few years back. And uh, I'd already connected with Mike and Chris years ago when I stayed with them for like shadowed them for a couple of weeks. So I knew Mike and I knew Chris Um, and me and Chris have been in contact for a long time. So I think it really spearheaded when um, Chris took over the women's program um, and uh, he was starting out his first season and I started doing a bit of consulting work with him, skills, aerial tackle, whatever. So I was going out to the OGC like, I think I went out like four or five weekends over the course of about four months. And, um, and then, you know, working with M. Bidewell, uh, there was an opportunity to, she, she called it an arranged marriage. So I was going to help Katie Dowdy, who's the 15s All-American coach. And then the, that just kind of segued into me doing the sevens because I was already aligned with the program and there's no under twenties on the seven side in the U S structure right now. So the tier below Eagles in the absence of like a well-funded Falcons program is my all American program and Brownie and the Olympic movement towards 28, 24, they need to find out. So that program became one that had to be closely aligned with the national team. Like it's not far down the, the, the tree, like, Brownie and Emily need to find the Ari Ramseys and others of the world. So yeah, and they they wanted to align it closer to the national team. So like what better than have someone who's been in their environment with the national team on in Brownies first year be the person that's coaching the next wave? Because I can go in and be like, This is what we're doing with the top team and uh and bridge that gap and uh so that's been a great opportunity. And then I got to go out to Japan with the Falcons tour. And, you know, that's the tour that Christy Kirsch kind of came alive. And um, and a lot of them others, Casey McCravey was on that tour. She's been capped since. Ashley Bird has been capped for 15 since then. Um, so a lot of them have gone on to, to bigger and better things from that tour. And I wish there was m- more of a Falcons program year round. I think it would be really beneficial for all of our programs. But so yeah, I've just stayed involved with that and um, really enjoy it. Um, you know, it's it's, a, it's definitely very different. But I mean, the other thing, I was apprehensive when I first talked to Emily about doing all American coaching because I was like, A, I'm not actually a head coach for a women's program. I, I was just starting one in Chicago with the women's program there. And B, I've never coached in college, but the mindset was I'm completely unbiased. I could pick four Life, three Lindenwood, two Arizona, five Central Washington. Like I had no allegiance to any of those programs. I could go to the CRCs with a blank page and be like, she's good she's good, we'll invite her, good athlete, needs work, whatever. So, I mean, there was probably an element of neutrality that helped and I could have fostered good relationships with the key stakeholders in the main women's programs across the country and have meaningful conversations with them about what players are talented and what we should have a look at. So, um, yeah, it's been a pleasure to be involved in that and um, it's an exciting process and it's a cool initiative. My focus has definitely shifted from initially when I was helping Chris um because they eventually got full-time assistant coaching with warren so i shifted with emily more towards strategizing where we're going to find the talent and martha danes who does under 18s and everything below to how we're going to find the athletes that are going to be competing at 2028 like who's going to replace a kelter who's going to replace Maya Topper? like how are when some of these athletes start to age out retire etc where are the new one's coming from and how can we fast track their development so it's an exciting but very long-term I think the
0: the interesting thing is as the the women's varsity movement, I wish the union was in a completely different position because I I always talk about triathlon because I'm a weirdo. I'm a hooker that does triathlon. It it makes no sense because I am a relatively big human being. I have never been smaller. I don't think at least as an adult, smaller than 185 pounds. So, and most triathletes that are any good are like 130 pounds. So, um, and, it's, uh, it's, in, uh, and I look at, I think we're, USA Triathlon is, uh, they've done very well on the philanthropy side, and they've mm-hmm. had strategic decisions made at the board level that they're like, well, in order for us to compete long term with women, it's a little bit harder with men because of Title nine. We have to have a varsity system in place where, because there are some very talented high school triathletes that go, and run or go and swim, and when they come back to the um, to women's triathlon at the elite level, they are behind. And it's mm-hmm. it, you see this in, in men in the men's sports side, but the triathlete development on the men's side for overseas is so much different. So it's really hard to compete because of Title IX. And so they made the decision to invest a lot of money, and they had a lot of money interestingly, because they they worked very hard to raise millions and millions of dollars into an endowment. And for every program that starts, they invest 300 grand over a three-year period. So, and if USA Rugby was in the position to where we could give a startup grant to an athletic department, it's three or 400 grand and be like, here, you know, you just started a varsity program. How many more varsity programs could you get to you know, we're at 22 next year, and I think – I know Katie Dowdy, I wouldn't say very well, but decently well. We're Facebook yeah. friends. Um, and uh, I really appreciate uh, what she's done at, at Dartmouth and all the work that's been done. And, like, for the American uh, – young American woman rugby athlete who's – all of those girls that play varsity, we're elite in another sport. Yeah. It, and they got to choose to go play rugby because it was, it was varsity. And mm-hmm. so they that's something we're missing, especially on the women's side, that will make us – I think that sets us apart from our, our greatest competition overseas is if we can have this varsity initiative. And, you know, as an age – as a uh, Collegiate All-American 7s coach, it helps out that there are going to be 22 schools, you know, with varsity programs that you get to choose from that all these athletes that used to go play another sport yeah, um, yeah. are sticking around on the women's side. And I think for men, it's a little bit more difficult because of title nine. But I also do believe that the varsity movement, if men's rugby is ever going to go NCAA, it is tied to women's rugby achieving championship status for 15s. Like yeah, I, yeah. I really do. Cause it's just so tough to, to achieve that status, A, I would say pseudo-varsity status to where where you are at Cal where you're in the athletic department but you're not an NCAA sport, or at Lindenwood where you're in the athletic department but you're not an NCAA sport, where you have all the support of a varsity program that is NCAA but you're not an NCAA sport. And so if – I do believe, especially – Cause you're seeing in the premiership, a lot of guys are coming out of college now because of the investment that was made that it's it sort of, it's sort of backwards, right? You had like everything backwards to the United States, mm-hmm. all of this scholastic, because we have a scholastic model culturally, all this investment has been made into high performance at high school and collegiate level. You don't see this. You don't see it a lot like that in the UK. And obviously I'm guessing it's not like this in Ireland, that much, but with the, bu- the investment that's going into the buck super league system and the league system in college, uh, you're seeing guy, more guys come out of the buck system. I think there's like four or five guys that are, I think under 25 that graduated through the buck system in the last couple of years and, and British universities and college sport, which is kind of like the NCAA, not really. Mm-hmm. It's, it's sort yep. of there. It's not like, it's not remote. It, I can't say it's not remotely similar. It's similar, but it's not the same, but you, because they've organized in the past 10 years under that, there has been a lot of investment by universities to professionalize their coaching and their systems and their clubs, partially Mm -hmm. because they didn't want to, they didn't want to deal with the the drinking rugby team anymore. And, uh, that we have in the United States, (laughs) you know, but, um, so you're seeing all over the place, high performance systems going in um, an investment like in athletics, because you go to Bath University, Team Bath, right? The facilities that Bath University has is world-class. You mm-hmm. go to the facilities that Loughborough University has yeah. is world-class. And so they've, they're have they like, you know what? Let's, let's pay a coach to yeah. coach our team, rather than have mm-hmm. a volunteer club coach, right? Yeah. And now you have a league system that is relatively high performance and you still have a hundred guys playing and you still have second and third teams playing in the college leagues. So you still have the club atmosphere, but you do have a high performance system. And I think the games are pretty good because when they were not this year, but last, the last couple of years, they've been on a live broadcast on YouTube. So I think you're seeing sort of that gap in development being met at the collegiate system. Mm -hmm. Um, in the UK for just sport in general. It's not the same. I don't think it will ever be the same, but you're going to see development pathways come through the university system because they just, it's enrollment dollars, right? It's sort of the same reason why a lot of rugby programs have been, um, established, uh, in a lot of colleges that didn't have rugby before is like, how do I attract these? How do I attract more students to my college? So, Yeah. yeah. um, Enough of me, I guess. So back to UCLA. So let's talk about some of the players you got on your roster. Um, A player that was um, on, uh, that was in the draft, Eric Naposki, great finisher. And I know you've talked um, with some MLR teams about him and um, his development and where he's going to go, but like very talented athlete, um, obviously and we are talking about what you're going to spend time with him this next season or next year and change. Yeah. So, and then you also have you, – you. I think you have more players that I've looked at, but I don't know the names of and I know yeah. by position. But you also have this tight head that is yeah. a monster. Yeah, Sean, so, C-words. Yeah, so how do you – so you have these athletes that you have now. So what are you going to do? Like, obviously, very technical coach. Like, what's the next thing with the crop of players that you have now?
1: Yeah, I mean, honestly, get, uh, getting them in an, an attacking shape, making that their identity as a framework so they can express themselves. For some of them, it's different, right? For some of them, it's physical development. Like, as you mentioned earlier on, like, S&C-wise, we need to put a, some muscle on and get those guys eating a little bit so that they're, pound for pound, able to go against some of the big programs. For someone like Sean, you know, he's got to undertake a, a massive technical development in terms of his skills. He's got some great soft hands for a tight end prop already, but you know, Alex's work with him on, it's all well and good being the size he is. Um, he's one of the biggest props in the world. Like he'd be up there with like one of the Tongan props, right? He's a big guy, but leveraging that to actually be able to scrum is, is a different story. And 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 the, the work that Alex can do with him is invaluable. And and then you've got someone like Eric, right? Who's just like phenomenal raw potential. You've got that X factor. You can beat guys, Got great footwork, superb sevens player. It's like, how do you, Give him the opportunity in a 15s game to find more ball. Like, if you look at Sevu Reese and Crusaders, he's the person I'd be getting Eric watching. Like, how many involvements does Sevu Reese have in a game? It's unbelievable. He's not hanging out in the wing, he's popping up everywhere. He's getting 10, 12, 13 carries a game for a winger without the ball having to get completely wide to him. So, getting Eric, you know, the skill set as well to play back three, to play other positions, whether that could be kicking, that could be aerial. So, It's on a case-by-case basis. We do IDPs with all of our players every quarter, um, and we give them areas for work-ons, and I give them feedback, and they give their own intrinsic goals and as well as what they perceive as their work-ons for their skill areas. So um, it's case-by-case with our players, and that's what makes, I guess, college rugby unique and very different to the rest of the world is like there's such disparity in your playing groups from a guy that will probably go play MLR and you might have a guy who's like this sport looks cool and you've kind of got everything in between whereas like if you were to go to love for a heart three those two players one guy is playing colts one guy is playing fourth side and one guy is playing first side right so we don't have that here yet per se but yeah just developing them and like my coaching style i mean i i I base a lot of it off a benjamin franklin quote which is if you tell me something i'll forget if you teach me something i'll try to remember but if you involve me i'll learn and I try and involve the players. It's going to be, it's it's a longer term solution. Like I could just tell them a game plan. This is what we're going to do against Arizona, but I'd rather put them in game-based situations under constraints of practice where they're smart guys, problem solve. We've got a list of emojis that I like, Doughty uses as well. Like um, I won't try and claim credit for it or anything like that, but um, that are principles of play. And we try and ask our players, you know, like, where is the space? How do we go forward? How do we stay square? You know, within the context of the constraints of whatever game we play in training. So, developing that problem solving amongst all the players and concurrently developing the skill sets they need to, to execute it and play a game plan. Like we want to play. Like I need my hookers and my, my flankers and my tight head props to be able to move the ball and skip past out the back, everything. So especially um, with a
0: two, three, two, one.
1: I mean, yeah. Everyone. It's <laughs> like, there won't be a guy where I will never be looking at a guy been like, you're the biggest guy in the two guy. You just carry, don't pass, don't kick, don't do anything. Just you carry. I want you here. X's and O's like, I'm not that way inclined, so that's a club um, system.
0: You, you find yeah. you find there's always that one guy when you play club, uh, especially at like the D two or D three level, where you just have a monster that can carry you the know. ball, and you just yeah. be like, you also know he can't pass, and you just like get over here every time we hit a ruck, and be you're gonna play first receiver, like we're not gonna, and we're just gonna pick and go because sometimes like you you're playing against a team that um doesn't have big guys like that or can't tackle and you just you just go
1: yeah and, and so a big and, and then trying to get up the rugby because i, I think another problem we haven't <laughs> talked about is that like the american high school rugby players even if they love it they don't have an opportunity or maybe an interest or accessibility to watch the game yeah so yep. Yep. we did all like the five games or four or five games whatever had in charge obviously reviewed how st mary's went Why Arizona put 29 points on us in the first half and then we lost 29-28 the second half? Like, What did we tweak? Why did I tweak that? Blah, blah, blah. So, But showing them the Crusaders attack when it worked and then when it didn't work. Showing them Leinster's attack against Toulouse when it worked and another game where it didn't work so well. And bringing it back to our own principles. And now they're like, ah, okay. So... That's been the biggest disappointment is I wish going through that process of watching Leinster, Hurricanes, Munster, um, Crusaders with our guys as well as reviewing our own footage. If we had had our next game which was going to be against San Diego State, I think I could have just let the guys run the the analysis session completely because they would have done it on a principles approach and instead of just looking at things like you know they're beating us out. wide, they'd look more systemically at wondering why they had numbers on the open side and what led to that? Did we not slow their breakdown enough? What was our full policy like? What was our alignment like in defense? They'd have broken it down to the root source of the problem. Like, did we give them quick ball? Did we give them gain line ball carry? Like, what was the root source? Because the winger can be like, I'm overnumbered over here. It's three on one out wide, which it was right against Arizona yep. in the first half. But getting them out of the habit of like looking at the outcome and now they can look at it on a principal's approach and be like, oh, we didn't do a good enough job getting off the line. Our line speed wasn't good enough. So they were winning the collision. They were winning the gain line. And on top of that, then winning the gain line, we didn't do enough to slow the breakdown so we could effectively fold, match a line and match them for numbers and get a launch on. So they got us on back foot with the number overload on the open side and they got it out wide easily. Once we tweak something at half time, and that was very much me feeding it in, But now that the players are watching and seeing the top teams, you know, falter and seeing why, and it's the same principles. It goes back to our emojis. It goes back to our principles of play. It goes back to the constraints in our games and training. I want our guys to be able to figure this stuff out. And I was just talking to my supervisor yesterday about like coaching, assistant coaching, whatever. I'm like, I want to get to the point where like my assistant coaches and myself have little to nothing to have to say at halftime. But like, I'll break them up and be like, we break off into like um, offense, defense, special teams and set piece. Um, pre-game into groups of four or five. And I want to be able to go to the special teams or our our offense team and be like, what are you seeing? Like, we're not kicking enough. There's space behind. Okay, cool. Defense, what are we seeing? We're contesting too many breakdowns ineffectively. We need to contest less, win the fold, match them for numbers. Great. Set piece, what are we seeing? Okay, blah, blah, blah. Okay, let's do it. Like, that should be my team talk if I do my job effectively. I'm not going to come out there with like a list of nine things going, you did this, you need to fold you're out like you know so um, i want to get to the point where they can problem solve and and even better than that let's not get to half time let's be under the posts after 10 minutes and we've given a try and my captain or my leaders or my scrum half my hooker anyone be like guys listen all we got to do is change this and they can self regulate within the game that then i know i've done my job
0: i think like uh you know i famously ben ryan uh, i forget um not um, redundant. Don't make yourself redundant. Not don't make yourself useless or something. I forget the word. I'm, I'm forgetting the word that I want to use here. But in a sense, um, not make it um autom- automative. But in a sense, like you want to coach everything well to the point, like in the three or four days you have during a week where you're not needed on on game day. I think that I think that as much as um, football is very coach driven, I think that if we if you could take that approach with how much stuff goes through a quarterback system head that if you had to do it, you could send the the coaches up to the box and they could play a game. Cause you see that, like you see it happen, like, um, especially at the, at the professional level, how much like the Peyton Manning's or the Tom Brady's of the world can just like, they, they, they're more or less having a conversation with their head coach, um, with cause they have, you know, helmets with mics, um, with, yeah. to the headset. They're just having a conversation about, Hey, what do you think? What's going on? Um, I'm thinking about, um, going X triple Y no go X triple R like route trees and all this other stuff. And they're not having really a play call. It's more of a conversation about, about decision-making you're obviously not going to do that in rugby just because we don't wear helmets, but you want to get your um, every coach wants to get it to the point where you can, in a sense, give them the keys and they go and you see this, a lot in rugby because, and this is, this is way different. The first time I ever watched an international game and I saw a coach in the box, I thought I was going insane because a culturally, that's not what we do in the United States. And, and now it's like, okay, I get it. And it's interesting, you know, Eddie, 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 EJ, Eddie Jones, will talk about this. And I remember when he talked about this on a podcast was that, you know, I think I'm going to start going to the sideline more and be like a football manager. And it's like, and people were like, oh, he's bringing soccer into this. And I was like, well, if you look at, like, he's one of those coaches and you see a lot of high-level rugby coaches come to the United States and they go watch baseball games, they hang out. Um, Eddie Jones famously has gone to the Texans. He's gone to the Padres. He's gone to every single different American sport and, like, shadowed coaching staffs and just watched. And it's just, like, at at that level, at that level, your, your head coach or director of rugby or whatnot can watch the first half and see all the tendencies. And then if things need to get changed, he can come down in the second half because he's already seen, a, in a sense, in, in his brain, I guess, because he's a yeah. genius, right? Yeah. Um, he can come down and, like, you just need someone communicating with you on yeah. the sideline that can get the correct message across. Because if you're in the box, right? Yeah and you radio to your assistant to have them fix something, the the message that is coming out of your mouth is not going to be the same message that comes out of his mouth. It's going to be close, but you're playing a game of telephone.
1: Yeah, but we we practice like that. So, I mean, that's what I do. I do sit in the box. I mean, a lot of it for me comes from like the analyst um, at Munster who's been there for, I think, 20 years. Um, he works for the Premier League soccer teams. And you, you miss about 30% of what actually goes on in a game if you're on a touchline. Like, you don't see what's going on at a yeah. breakdown, at a far side, rugby particularly, right? So, um, but I do get things in and it's more like our KPIs, whether it's a penalty count, whether it's 22 visits, whether it's whatever, some trends that are happening early in a first half, yeah. that if I can get it to my captain or my pack leader, that he knows how to tweak that. He knows if penalty count is high, he'll he'll take that information and make a plan on the field. If we haven't had any 22 visits, and they've had five, he can go to the fly half and be like, "We need some 22 visits. I want you to start looking at the corners. Let's play the territory game for a few minutes. Let's give ourselves opportunities to turn over a line out in their in their in, in their greens in our reds. Their greens on our red zone, zone, zone etc." So, I do those, but I will feed that in through the players. And the re- and the way we rehearse that is during training when we're playing games or constraints. I'll pause the game for about 20 seconds and I'll just grab one guy off each team and I'll be like, okay, we're moving to two-touch and if you um, feel the kick of your own kick, you get three points, go. And they cipher that message and the game continues. The next stoppage, okay, now it's no longer two-touch, it's one-touch turnover. Off you go, do it what you please. Or I might come in and be like, it's 10 on 10, it's a full-size field, where's the space? And they're like, I don't know, you've got 30 seconds your team, figure it out. So like and I then go and generally go and listen to them articulate it to their teammates and I learn their language because yeah. that's a big thing and I've gotta be hyper conscious as an international coach. When I say punch your hand through your pass, that might mean anything, but they might use a terminology in football like drive or follow through or swoosh, whatever. I wanna hear how they int- interpret that and how they how they disseminate that and articulate that to their teammates. And I adapt my language around that. During practice, I'm not a whoa shouting coach because I want to replicate what they're going to get on game day. So, like in practice, you've a new situation where I can stand in the middle of the field and direct them, but I can't do that on a game day. So I try, where possible, to get my message through them to their peers and problem solve. It. And then when we do debrief, whether it's a training block or the end of the session, which we don't do a lot of talking in my sessions, um, they'd be like, "What changed?" You're like, well, you changed the rules. Now we could, it was two touch and there was kicking options. Okay, what was the resulting effect? Well, that team in orange, they dropped three guys into the backfield to feel the kicks. I was like, so where was the space then? And they're like, well, there was actually space for us to play wide rugby then because it was 10 on seven. Okay, cool, so which space was the better space? Now we're into real some questions. They're like, well, it depended. Okay, great, now they're problem solving. So it's, it'll be the same on a game. Some teams will run a pendulum. Some teams will run a 13-2 defensive structure. Sometimes teams will have a 9-sweeping bat. Some guys will have a 9 8 pillar. I want them to be able to figure out, like game constraints, what they're seeing in front of them and how they can exploit it on the game without me having to come in at halftime and be like, hey, guys, I've been in the box for 40 minutes, and did you realize that their left winger is always in the line? Like, it's too late. Like, I want my 10 to be able to see that in the first few minutes of the game.
0: Yeah, um, so uh, can I see the glossary to your playbook um, so I can read all the verbiage? yeah that was was great i love uh, i'm gonna have to like i I know that we've spent 90 minutes this has been awesome but we're gonna have to like i try to do some what you would call in football chalk talks but i try to do um you can go back in the, the library i did some uh some i guess uh i guess we called them rugby techniques um with um gordon hanlon where we talked about defensive and attacking systems and we covered the the 242 the 1331 and the yeah. and the 1322 but now i'm interested in the uh, this 2321 and i'm gonna have to pay more attention when i watch the crusaders because yeah. we're gonna have to you know sit down and, and do this again where you just you know shoot the crap about um your attacking philosophy using the the 2321 um in you know maybe a couple months but uh uh, you know, Dave, uh, I really enjoyed your time. Um, obviously, I think sure. you you didn't tell you didn't text me to get out of here, um, so I think you you did all right too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you for your time and uh, good luck uh, this fall with whatever kind of fall you get with your players uh, before hitting the spring season um and uh looking forward to continuing to follow ucla rugby like i said it's a college that i, I grew up watching um in football and basketball and baseball but uh, it's always cool to see you know a program with good leadership make a move forward and uh, so again. Friend,
1: appreciate it. it's been a fun conversation and uh It's uh, great to tell the story and uh, what we're doing and get some exposure for the program. So thanks for having me on. It's been brilliant.
0: No problem. Um, And everyone who watched this, thank you for, I think that we might've had one the whole time. We peaked at like 15, which was, which was great. Um, And then everyone who listens to this later on, um, you can, where can they find you, Dave? Uh, What do you mean, like contact me? No, like Twitter, Twitter. Yeah, Twitter is my
1: rugby platform. I, my social media pictures are like nature and stuff like that. that I, that's what I was saying to you. Like, I keep a low profile. I don't talk about rugby other than on Twitter.
0: Well, I mean, you and I definitely talked about – it was last year during that two-legged playoff thing uh, in so- – in the was it the, the UEFA Champions League? And I was like, I don't know what this is going on. I forget what team it, – but it was like a two-legged semifinal, right? Yeah, and they yeah. do – they wait – home and away goals? Was it something to do with that? Yeah, it was so weird. It, it, like, it as American, weird. it's so weird.
1: So you can tie, but one team will go through because they scored more goals in the away fixture.
0: I was like, I don't, I don't know. remember
1: that. But, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where I grew up watching Champions League, and you're like, okay, Man United drew 2-2 or what, 3-3 with some team, but they go through because they scored two away goals and you scored one away goal. It's like, what? So, so I'm I always so if you tied San Diego Legion and Seattle tied, but Seattle went through because they were away, it would be the Americans in the crowd would be like <laughs> ripping their tickets off. It. Yeah,
0: luckily, luckily, and this is like when when M L R first came on and it was going to be a point system because I'm very into like I'm a, as an American I'm like wins versus losses, and luckily M L R hasn't had a playoffs where. The teams that went to the playoffs um, lost more games or oh, won yeah. less games, yeah. but had more points. And yeah. I would say for most Americans, if that whenever because we do have a point system in MLR, whenever yeah. if that ever does happen, that is there's going to be some fan outcry because that make it will even though we have a point system, it doesn't make sense.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess it it makes more sense the more teams we have.
0: Oh yeah. I, I like, cause I mean, hockey does have a point system, but usually like that usually doesn't, if you have, like say we have 24 teams, I don't think you'll run into that one year. Like the it does happen the premiership where one team does end up having more points. But for me, it's always like, if the team won three more games than the other team, then hopefully they're going through because that makes no sense if, let's say... um, It happened in Premier League soccer this year. I mean, Chelsea,
1: Manchester United, Wolves and Leicester were all trying to get in the top four and it came down to points difference for one of them and now they're not playing in the European Cup next year. Crazy. 38 games. But within that four, there's definitely teams that have won a lot more. Yeah. And there's teams that have way less losses but loads more ties. Yeah. You'd think the winning most team would go in um, yeah, I always find that a bit hard. Like I follow other sports like um, Formula One or surfing, and I find it hard to fathom that it doesn't happen, right? But a guy could be a world surfing champion or world Formula One champion and win no races. Yeah. They came second place in every race, they'd be world champion.
0: It used to be like that NASCAR. Yeah. Um, but it's no longer like that because they instituted the playoff system. Yeah. Um, so you have to get a certain number of points to qualify. Okay. But um in the playoff system you have to like you have to continuously win more points and then when you get down to the last race I think it's like there's only been one year where the guy who won second in that playoff system won NASCAR but every other year the guy who won the the final race in the playoff system won the won I guess not the league but won the circuit because yeah. like they, they moved away, I guess they Americanized their point system, but the way the point system was weighted, because you used to have like 50 cars in a race, right, so you get like 5,000 points if you finish first, so it was very weird um, to be honest, I, I, I definitely wasn't paying that much attention to how their point system worked until they had a playoff system yeah, yeah, yeah so, so uh, great to talk Thanks, Dave. Uh, it, it's been great. Um, like I said, this will be out. Um, I'll talk to my producer. It'll probably be out on Sunday, um, and uh, we'll get this we we'll get this thing going um, for those that just want to listen and want to run at the same time. So, great, awesome.
1: Have a great evening.
0: This has been Lineouts by Earful of Dirt. Connect with Earful of Dirt online. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Earful of Dirt. You can email us at earfulofdirt at gmail.com or call and leave us a voicemail at 720-600-2679. For Aaron, Dan, and Victor, I'm Corey. Thanks for listening.